Childhood trauma can present itself throughout adulthood in feelings of shame, guilt, depression, anxiety, isolation, and more. In this episode of Normalize the Conversation, we hear a mental health journey from verbal abuse at age nine to disordered eating behaviors to the ups and downs of romantic relationships. Welcome to Normalize the Conversation. I'm your host, Francesca Reichter, and today I'm joined by Jacqueline Tipton, a mental health advocate and program director for NAMI Tallahassee. Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited for our conversation. Before we begin, I just want to check in with you. How are you really? Oh, goodness. Wow. That's a good question to start off with. I am frazzled. I had a couple of meetings today and I'm going on my very first silent meditation retreat um, this weekend. So I've been getting lots of emails about that. My cat has um, a UTI like situation going on. So I'm calling the vet and insurances. And then my fiance just came back from Kentucky so I'm, <laughs> I forgot about this podcast until 30 minutes ago. So I was like, ah! <laughs> so um, I'm frazzled and very stressed and anxious, but not in a debilitating way. So it's been a day. It's been a day. <laughs> it's been a day. <laughs> it's really like amazing that you were able to kind of experience so much in one day and yet still show up for this for yourself to have that positive attitude toward it and not feel debilitated by it because when I know for me when I'm feeling overwhelmed and so much is going on and I start to get frazzled I completely shut down yeah it takes I still get I still get like that um but you know it's just a lot of practice um, and knowing your coping mechanisms and when to say no and stuff like that. But yeah, it still does happen to me. So <laughs> I'm glad that today is not, not one of those days. <laughs> Likewise. So we actually met less than a month ago in Orlando at the NAMI Florida conference. And wait, so I never actually asked you this, but what brought you to the conference? So I actually work with NAMI Tallahassee um, and I, it's always so exciting to say because um, we have been volunteer based for over 10 years and we just got enough money to hire a program coordinator for the first time. And that's me. So even our executive director, the person who's, you know, fronting everything in NAMI Tallahassee doesn't get paid. So I, I feel so incredibly grateful for this position and um for my depression and anxiety, I can't work full time anymore. And so this job is 25 hours a week. And it is at a livable way where I can have, you know, a two bedroom apartment with my fiance. And I yeah, so that's kind of what brought me there. Um, it was my first tsunami conference. And, you know, we didn't have any conferences up until that point. Um, since before COVID. So it was it was a, a push into the mental health world that I had never been in person before. That, first of all, congratulations on getting that job position opportunity <laughs> and to get the funding. It's, I mean, take it from me, a nonprofit startup. 
it's yeah. hard to get to that point to have that funding and that takes yeah. a lot of work and to see how long you volunteered with it and how much you stuck it out and got to this point is incredible so just congratulations thank you so much <laughs> what was it like for you that experience of being at your first mental health conference oh it was it was really nice um having so many people there that kind of either were going through the same thing or had loved ones going through the same thing was really nice um, I would say my favorite part about the conference was the young adult track, which is, um, she didn't say it, but Fran was actually speaking at the NAMI conference, which is why she was there. <laughs> and so um, we had like a, a dinner for um, people around our age. So I think like, you know, 18, to like 29-ish. And everyone was so cool, so nice, you know, really debilitating mental illness but in recovery and having jobs and everyone had business cards and it was just it gave me so much life to know that there are other people out there like me that struggle every single day with their mental health or you know like panic disorder or bipolar disorder like all these different things and they are living very fulfilling lives um both in their personal and their work life um so I, I really, really enjoyed that. I did too. I loved how lighthearted that dinner was for all oh. of us to be so open, so vulnerable, sharing their experiences, sharing some very difficult experiences and still finding ways to laugh and to enjoy it and to feel like we're in it together, which is so hard with mental health conversations, because when you're talking about serious mental illness, when you're talking about relationships with mental health and how it can be very difficult and traumatizing situations people have been in to find that sense of security and comfort that you can not only talk about it, but laugh and feel safe enough to find that sense of comfort is yeah. beyond anything I've experienced in a group setting like that before. Yeah. And it, I think it really showcases how our generation uses humor to cope with what's in our head because there were jokes nonstop and they were they were killing me. They were so good. <laughs> was so many jokes and it was just nice to see I want to say it was nice to see other people struggling, but it was nice to see how not alone. And although so many of our situations and experiences were different, there was that kind of common ground in so much of it. Yeah, yeah. There's so much towards the people who like aren't in recovery, right? So the people who like us at one point were in a really, really low state. So, you know, so much effort and energy is put towards those, those people. But then there are people in recovery that don't really like get a lot of notice, you know. So to have a bunch of people around our age in recovery, oh, I could talk about it forever. <laughs> Likewise, because there's very rarely groups of people our age. You know, usually yeah. you or at least for me, when I enter into a room, whether it was in the psych ward, just in a group setting, it tends to be a lot of people who are older and although all the experiences are valid and I love to offer that space and support sometimes it can feel difficult because they're not in the same life position and time period as yeah. I, where social media is a big influence in my life versus they've built careers before social media so they don't yeah. need to rely on how many followers they have to get people to yeah. want to listen to them 
Oh, I know. It's so different. So that space to me was amazing. Before we move into your story, I do have to ask, what was your favorite part of the conference and why was it my speech? (laughs) I did love your speech. I will say (laughs) that um, you were asking questions. I would say I'm a really empathetic, empathetic person, but Fran was like, all right, pop quiz. And so we would like do the little quizzes on our phone. I failed every single one of them. I was like, oh my God. Do you do you have um like data of how many people got things right and stuff afterwards? I should look into that. I didn't even think about it. I don't know why, but now I'm curious. Yeah, I, know I, know. I assumed that like they were easy quizzes, but they're not because we don't know this stuff. No one teaches us. And I wrote the book on it. So to me, yeah. it's like, oh, everyone knows it. No, that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Like everything you were saying, I was like, oh yeah, I do that. Like, oh, this is exactly like how I go through it. But like putting it in terms of like, this is, you know, the, I can't even remember. I'm so sorry. But like, this is this portion and this is this portion. And this is when you say this, I was like, wait, there's like an algorithm for this. And so it confused me and I failed everything. (laughs) I definitely enjoyed that pop quiz of being on the other side of it and not making other people fail but maybe a little bit because I was laughing at myself I took a screenshot of my 33% on one of them I was like oh god I do want to add um I it was my favorite speech because yours is the only speech that I was like you should have a TED talk and I did research for you I've never done that for anyone and I was like Fran listen I applied, by the way. So we'll see how. Oh that my goes. gosh! Oh, I need to. I need to do that for you as well. Oh my gosh! I'm gonna do it. I appreciate you. And now that we talk about how amazing I am, because I love that. I sound so conceited right now. But no, no, no. <laughs> now that we talked about me, let's talk about you. I mean, this is your episode. What's your mental health journey? Okay, I probably I think I started noticing how anxious I was at around like eight or nine years old. Um, And then well, first off, I have generalized anxiety disorder and persistent depression with major episodes. Um, Meaning that my depression won't go away. So it's always like kind of in a mild state. Um, But then I can fall into a really deep pit pit sometimes and it takes me a while to get out of it. Um, so nine was around the time my generalized anxiety started to form. Um, and I believe that was triggered by, um, my stepmom first coming into the picture. Although, you know, there's no way to prove that, uh, my mom is depressed and anxious as well. So it could be genetics (laughs) at play. And, um, then I really noticed my first major depressive episode when I was, let's see, 14. And I had started dating this guy and I was like, oh my God, I'm so in love with him. He is like the one I'm going to marry him, like all of that stuff. And then we were dating for maybe like six months and then he FaceTimed me and he said, actually, I realized that I'm gay. So I was like, oh, great. (laughs) So um, I cried and I cried and I cried. And I was like, this isn't normal to like cry every day for a year. So 
finally, I kind of like started getting out of that. And um, I went into a charter school where you get like your AA and your high school diploma at the same time. So it was really rigorous. And they said that like the people who worked there were like, 10th grade is boot camp. So be prepared. And it was really, really hard. And so in 10th grade is when I got put on my first, I don't know, like medication. But the doctor was like, oh, yeah, it's just situational. So here's birth control because you're just hormonal. And I was like, okay. So I went on birth control. And then I found out that not not super like at the same time, but that was the first time that I realized that I was really sensitive to medication. Um, so I started throwing up every single day because um, uh, at the beginning of like the pills, um, because it mimics pregnancy, um, which tricks your brain into thinking you're pregnant. So you have like normal cycles and whatnot. Um, and so during the morning sickness phase, I was throwing up every single morning. And so that kind of contributed to you know, some of my like anxiety because it's like going to class and then realizing you have to throw up <laughs> every single month and then having to run to the bathroom and stuff. So that was really stressful. So um, I was pretty depressed. Um, in 10th grade, my dad said that they, they coined it the cry night when I would come in on Wednesday into the living room and just cry and cry and cry. <laughs> And they would have to kind of like say, hey, everything's okay. This is for your future and whatnot. Um, but I was really, you know, emotional. And I was like, I don't really understand why. Um, so it was just a lot of confusion, but mostly feeling like I had to be perfect all the time um, because that those standards were put on me by my dad and my stepmom to like always be better and stuff like that, but, um, in kind of a negative way. So then we go, let's, let's fast, fast forward. Um, because things were pretty, things were pretty mild and like good, just very stressful getting my AA and my, um, high school diploma. But then I went to FSU and then halfway through my first year, I met another guy um, and he was pretty terrible. Um, lots of um, very offensive jokes towards people and just not, it was just, it was a very toxic situation, but we weren't together very long, maybe like two months. But then that stayed with me whenever I told him goodbye because this wasn't good for my mental health. It just really stuck with me. So the summer after my, um, my first year at FSU, I told my dad, Hey, I think I need therapy. <laughs> and, um, this was the first time I'd ever brought it up, but we, he was kind of like open to it. He was like, Oh, shrinks don't do anything. But at the same time, my sister um, who's diagnosed with bipolar one, well, stepsister. So she's not blood, but she was diagnosed with bipolar one and pathological lying and like something else. <laughs> so she had been going to therapy for a long time. So I was like, I think that this is something that I need at this point. And he said, well, why don't we just put you on some medication and like call it a day? 
And then I cried and I cried because I was like, I like you want me to just medicate myself without even trying to find out why I'm upset and sad and crying and stressed all the time. So I finally was like, okay, sounds good. And he put me in therapy and it's been a rocky road since then, but thank God that I started in therapy because I don't think I'd be here today without my current therapist. So I was only with that therapist for that summer, but she taught me a lot of like the basics of mental health. Um, So taught me that uh, a lot of my trauma from my stepmom specifically, because she's a narcissist. So fun to be a daughter of a narcissistic mother. Um, It was really, really damaging. And so um, we kind of learned that through my trauma, I felt like I wasn't worthy enough to be alive. Like I wasn't doing enough in my life to constitute living. And to really like verbalize that and to conceptualize it with someone else was really, really jarring and really upsetting. And I think that kind of snowballed into where I'm at now with being a mental health advocate and working for NAMI and, you know, being in the nitty gritty of everyone's, everyone else's recovery and mental health and remission and all of that good stuff. But my first therapist told me, um, is a baby worthy? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, that baby can't take care of itself. It hasn't done anything for society. It cries all the time. Most of the time, like it's more work than anything. And that baby deserves to be alive. That baby is worthy enough to be alive so why do you feel like you're not worthy enough to be alive and that really shook me to my core it was it was one of those aha moments in therapy you know and so I took that and that's still something that I'm working on let's see 18 so like six years later (laughs) um is feeling like I'm not worthy enough to live so that's, that sucks, but you, you know, <laughs> so moving on <laughs> in my second year of college, I was really in a toxic roommate situation where they were very mean to me and I could hear them like talking about me outside my door. I locked myself away. I didn't have any real friends outside of that. And I was also trying to apply for grad school. And then one of my teachers in writing, because I was an English major, I said, hey, I am trying to get into the grad program here for creative writing. Um, Could you look over my piece and like give me some pointers? And he basically told me there's no way that you're going to get in. I am the person who allows people in or not. And you're toast. He told me you're toast. And I already already put like hundreds of hours like into trying to get into this particular program at FSU. And so that really rocked me to my core. And then I just kind of gave up. And that was probably 
one of the most suicidal like times in my life because I didn't feel like I had a purpose. I didn't know where I was going. At this point, I didn't realize what I went through as a kid was considered, you know, psychological or emotional abuse. And so I thought about going and living with my stepmom again in Washington, D.C., because they had moved there. And so it was just like so up in the air about everything. And um, so then another boy came along. Of course, my... My my dips and my my hills and my valleys, my mountains and all that always surround a boy, it seems like. And so this boy comes up, I know, and he's like a musician and he plays the mandolin and the guitar and he sings and does shows and he's like in touch with his sensitive side. <laughs> and um, it was like we clicked immediately. Um, but he was on, he, he had bipolar one and refused medication. Um, and some people can do that, but he's definitely not one of those people. So there were lots of times where I was seared for his life during his depressions. And a lot of times where I was having to almost control him through his manias, And I didn't really know too much about bipolar at that point. So I didn't know how to disconnect myself from his illness, I guess. So it made my depression way worse because just compounding depression on depression is (laughs) really dangerous. And so we'd both get to this really, really low point. But with this relationship, I, you know, it was the first relationship since my first relationship with the guy who was like, hey, I'm gay. But I was like, this is the one. And so um, I was very, very devastated whenever he left because I had enmeshed myself with him, meaning that I didn't have autonomy anymore like I was just the relationship I was we're just gonna call him Jake (laughs) I was Jacqueline and Jake you know there was no Jacqueline and so when he left I felt like a part of me had left and I didn't know who I was because I went into that relationship and a severe depression and the relationship lifted me up a little bit and so when he was gone I was just back to square one of you know, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, everyone leaves me that I love. <laughs> and so I was at this time, I was already with my current uh, therapist, Angela, shout out to Angela, she's the fucking bomb. I've been with her, oh, goodness, maybe like four, four and a half years now. And she has gotten me through everything. I I forgot a boy, another boy abandoned me. (laughs) Uh, And it was, it was very sad. And I was like, Oh, no one loves me. But you know, uh, you know, just boy after boy. And so after this last boy, Jake, I was like, all right, I really got to figure out why I have this boy dumps me. So I want to (laughs) die. Like, you know, mental 
I don't know, like track, like I couldn't get off the trail, the rails. The train was just plowing through and I had no control over it. So at this point, I was doing a lot of journaling. I I started um, Jacko Loves You, which is um, just like my little Instagram that tries for advocacy and shares my experience. I walked everyone through every single part of my breakup. And I was like, you know, today I'm feeling better, but I thought of him and I accidentally stopped his Instagram. Like it was, I was really putting myself out there and it was very healing in the sense that this is the first time I ever talked about anything um, mental health related. So I ended up doing that and it was very empowering to me and I realized how important mental health is and I saw myself healing and I was like this is possible for everyone you know it's not (laughs) no one's gatekeeping healing you know I was like oh okay um during that time I started my first antidepressant which like I never was against medication I was just like I want to see if I can work this out without medication before going on it. And I know that doesn't work with everyone. Like a lot of people with um, schizophrenia need to be on medication to not have delusions and hallucinations and stuff. But for my depression, I was like, let's see if I can manage this first. So I wasn't managing (laughs) that breakup was like so bad. I was just, you know, video journaling in my bathroom, smoking weed and crying like every night. It was so bad. (laughs) And so um, I I felt like I was like pretty good in my like healing journey, but I was still kind of raw, you know. And um, then I'm going to tell this story in the way that I told it at that dinner. Um, I met this guy (laughs) on um, Tinder. And it was just supposed to be a hookup because I was sad and lonely and it was, it was COVID. Don't hate me, but I was like, I'm going to meet up with this guy. (laughs) He took a COVID test. I took a COVID test. And um, so we hooked up a couple of times. And one time we were just like sitting there and he gave me the look, you know, the like, this is more than a a hookup situation. I like you more than that. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I just got out of a relationship maybe like six months ago. Like I'm still very raw about that. And he was like, well, it doesn't have to be super serious. I just wanted you to know that I like you. And I sat him down and I grilled him. And I was like, what's your religion? What's your political views? Do you want children? Are you racist? Like every single question I could ever think. And this man passed every single one of them. And I was like, I'm still sus, but like, we can talk, but I'm, I'm not, you know, in a relationship with you. We're just kind of going to see how this goes. And now I'm engaged (laughs) and we're living together. So, um, this is our, this is our beautiful, um, two bedroom apartment that I told you about earlier. And we've got a cat and a dog and we're getting married in May. So story. Yeah. So with Jake, that past relationship, I really was like, I need to work on myself to attract people that are on the same level as me. I read this book called Getting Past Your Breakup by Susan J. Elliott. And that book changed my life. 
oh my gosh, that's one of the like pivotal moments of like healing for me was reading that book. And in that book, she explains the concept of water seeks its own level. So if you have like, say two jugs, right? And you have one that's filled up here and one that's filled down here, they're going to stay like that, right? And they're not going to like merge at all. But if you have a line, like a, I don't know, just like a tube connecting the two at the bottom, those levels are going to even out. So the idea is if you want a really healthy partner, right? Who's like really emotionally intelligent and like does all of these things that you want and like isn't toxic and blah, blah, blah. You're going to have to make yourself like that to attract people like that. So that's when I started really, I was like, I want this particular type of person, you know, as my partner, I need to put in the work to become that person. And lo and behold, (laughs) um, this, this guy I stumble upon is on the same level as me. And I think the great thing about it is that we're both growing together. So it's like, we're raising our, you know, water levels, but at the same rate. So it's not stagnant. It's not, you know, me getting really depressed and dragging him down. You know, it's, it's always been very steady. (sighs) So I guess we are to present time. Um, With my work, I realized that I couldn't do full time because that was in the period that I was like really suicidal. Um, it was the before I met Jake period. And then right after Jake broke up with me um, that I was like the most suicidal. And so the after part was where I was um, doing marketing full time for a <laughs> company that sells EDM flow toys for people going to rave festivals. <laughs> So so it's a wild job. Um, But I just, I grew to hate it. I was like, this isn't helping anyone. This isn't doing me any good. It just felt like the grind to get money. It was just, I I was so, I was so mentally ill. (laughs) So not in remission. (laughs) And so um, when I quit that job, I ended up, getting no I didn't get but I created Jacko Loves You as like a brand and I started selling t-shirts and things like that and then I was like I'll give myself a year and then see like what I want to do after that oh my god I hated it so I was like okay never mind I can't I don't want to do this um but the shirts and stuff were cool I really liked doing that sort of thing but it was just too stressful to have my I don't know, like my motivation intrinsically tied to my income. And so it was, it was really stressful not to just like show up and then like do as much as you can and then call it a day. It was like, I always felt like I had to do something more. So I just wasn't good for my depression. And my anxiety was so bad that I would just physically like not do anything for like three days at a time. (laughs) I was like, you know, I got to (laughs) work. So At this point, I had been volunteering with NAMI, um, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, um, for about a year, a year and a half. 
And the executive director, who is my current boss, um, came to me and she was like, we have a um, basically like a stipend um, to give to someone to rule outreach um, around the counties of Leon, which is uh, where Tallahassee is. And so I did that and that was for two months. And um, after that, the um, program coordinator position was put up maybe like five months. and within that time, I decided I wanted to try to be a peer specialist, which is um, in like inpatient outpatient settings for mental health. There is always a peer there, meaning there's someone with mental health conditions who is in remission, who is recovered, um, who like talks people through what they're going through in inpatient and outpatient. And so I did that and I liked it, but I realized that it was draining me a lot, that every conversation I had with someone was like taking a little bit away from me. And I can do that, but not every single day. And at that point, I kind of wanted to be a therapist. And I was like, okay, well, now I know that I I would just be expending so much of my, my energy doing that. Um, and then Nancy offered me this job. And it has been so lovely because I can help people in such a direct way with mental health, which is what I'm passionate about. And I can still protect that energy, you know, so I'm not coming home at the end of the day, completely exhausted, not able to do anything. I still am doing my hobbies and, you know, hanging out with friends and like making sure my mental health is, you know, as intact as it can be while also advocating for what I think is one of the most important things that we can have in our life, mental health. So (laughs) that was quite a monologue. (laughs) Um, Questions? Uh, Did I miss anything? (laughs) Jacqueline, I heard bits and pieces of your story at that dinner, but I had never heard the whole thing. The ups yeah. and the downs and just kind of constant for so long to get to where you are right now. I am blown away by you. I mean, I want to break down <laughs> all you. of it. So we're going to dive in deep. Yeah, let's do it. Oh, t- talking about my story is one of my favorite things. I'm like, hey, I was sad and now I'm not as sad. Isn't that cool? <laughs> same I love it I love like my favorite part of therapy is that I get to talk about myself for an hour and it's all about me and what I'm going through it's there's this quote in um Desperate Housewives Gabby says um that therapy is like a talk show all about her just an hour talk show and I love it so that's how I see therapy yeah. I love getting to talk and share my story but back to you so you said you recognized these signs of anxiety as early as eight, nine years old. What was that like? Break that down a little further. Hmm. I'm trying to think of like some specific. So they would be like little things. So at this point, my parent, my parents got divorced when I was six. And then my stepmom came into the picture when I was nine. Um, and it, it all happened very sudden. So the story is um, my dad had been dating around. And so I wasn't like too 
upset that this person, let me, let me, let me rename her. Vicky. Okay. Um, so Vicky is my stepmom. <laughs> and um, so when Vicky came in, she was, she cursed a lot. She was kind of brash, but I was like, whatever, you know, my dad dates a bunch of different people. Well, not a bunch, you know, every couple of months, like I would meet a girl and be like, hi, nice to meet you. Here are my drawings. Cause I was really young. And so um, I was like, I didn't think much about it. But so I met her once or twice. And then on a car ride to my mom's house, my dad said, hey, oh, no, 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 back up. So in Walmart parking lot, he told me, hey, I'm going to move to Indiana to be with Vicky and her daughter. Let's see, what's her name? Um, uh, Caitlin. And you're going to stay here and live with your mom. And I was like, if that's what makes you happy. And of course, I'm like sobbing. I'm crying. I'm trying to be, you know, there for him. But at the same time, I was like, I'm going to lose my dad. And so then I think he saw how upset I was. And then he was like, okay, never mind. Um, I'm not moving. And I was like, okay, that's awesome. But then he was like, hey, by the way, this was on the car ride to my mom's house. I'm going to marry Vicky. I had never met her daughter. I had only met her twice. And I was like, I started crying again. <laughs> and so they immediately moved in. And, you know, the change was just absolutely drastic. Um, Caitlin had you know, these issues of pathological lying and she had a lot of outbursts and she was ill-behaved, but I don't think like all of it was her fault. I feel like how she was raised and stuff just wasn't very loving. <laughs> so I don't blame her. She's in recovery now and she's doing really well, but at the time it was just really hard on me. And so I think that's where a lot of the stress came from. Um, like having to be in my room for the very first time. By the time I was nine, I was still sleeping in my dad's bed. And then at my mom's, I was still sleeping in my mom's bed until I was around 10. So I, that kind of expedited that. And I wasn't allowed to sleep with my dad. So it gave me insomnia for a really long time. Um, so I was tired all the time. And just like little things, like there was this one time that you know, the parents wanted alcohol. And so they went into my like little piggy bank and got money from me, you know, or my mom was really upset that I was staying at my dad's house for a day longer. And so then I was worried about her feelings. And then, you know, on my dad's side with Vicky, you know, they were always saying that you're not enough unless you X, Y, and Z. So like get good grades, unload the dishwasher, um, are a good kid, you know, don't get into fights. Like it's understandable, but it put this idea in my head that I had to be a certain way to gain their love. And I want to, and I want to clarify because my dad was really, really good to me, but I, he didn't realize like how extensive the abuse was for my stepmom. 
and her telling me that I'm worthless, that I'm never going to get into college, that I'm going to be back in their house and never go anywhere. And that I'm, yeah, she just said a lot of bad things to me that my brain has really tried to protect me from. So like right now I can't pull a lot of stuff because it was really traumatic for me at the time. And my brain just shuts that part out. So I have to really be talking to my therapist to be like, oh, that was really shitty. <laughs> like, for example, um, if my stepmom, let's let's say that I'm like cooking like a little personal pan pizza. That's what I used to eat a lot um, with some cucumbers and chocolate milk. Everyone thought it was really disgusting, but I loved it. That was that was what I ate. Interesting combo. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, if I was like, you know, microwaving my pizza and whatnot, if she came in the kitchen, my stepmom, we would have to leave no matter what we were doing or we would get yelled at. Or um, my sister, Caitlin, um, would she she had a problem with binge eating and I had a problem with like borderline not eating like anorexia, but like, I didn't really know what was going on. I just never wanted to eat and I was losing weight and that, that kind of thing. So we kind of went opposite ends with our eating disorders. But, um, Vicky was very, uh, fat phobic. And so they didn't help me at all. Um, they just kind of praised me for being my size, which was really skinny. I was under a hundred pounds at like five, five. So I was really tiny. And then she was gaining weight. So they would put like weight loss magazines on her bed when she came home from school, or they would call her like a fat pig. They locked up all the food for her in their bedroom. And she wasn't allowed to eat except when they gave her food. And so um, I wasn't I didn't have any of those restrictions. I could, I had a key to their bedroom. Like I go into my dad's stash and stuff. So they definitely treated her very unfairly. But because of that, I was terrified of doing something wrong to be treated like my sister was treated. And so they really pitted us against each other because they, I was the golden child and she was the scapegoat. Basically, she was the one that got all of this shit and they put me on this pedestal and was like, this is our only child that's going to do anything. But we both suffered so severely from both of those different roles in a narcissistic family. Um, So (laughs) I, of course, there's no way to really know for sure, but I am, I feel in my heart very positive that all of that going on um, with Vicky definitely is a major reason why I have difficulty with anxiety and depression today because she's constantly in my head telling me I'm not good enough. So it was really hard and I'm still working through that. (laughs) That is a lot to say the least, especially at a young age to have so much kind of fear of what if I'm not perfect what if they see a flaw in me and I mean we're human we have flaws you can't control how difficult the exam is like that you have to take you can't control what spelling words you get that week 
Like you can't control yeah. these. Like I always say with tests, especially growing up, I can't control what the teacher puts on the test. I can control how much I study and how much I prepare. But what if there's a trick question? And then I'm falling mm-hmm. apart on the floor crying because it wasn't perfect over something I couldn't control. I studied so hard. Or like with our weight, yeah. I remember a cheer being put on a scale to see if we were small enough to be a flyer. And it's like, what if I'm hungry? What if I just want to eat? And now I feel pressured to not eat. So to kind of have that constant anxiety in your home or that fear mm-hmm. is a lot. And that fear of, I don't want to say fear of, but that massive change of suddenly your dad's getting married, suddenly you're not sleeping in his bed, suddenly everything's changing. And how do you find your ground? That's a lot at a young age. And I know for me, do you like Taylor Swift? I'm not a huge fan, but I I do like her. She's great. (laughs) There's this one lyric from a song tied together with a smile where it's, I might not be the golden one, but I'm tied. Or you cry, but you don't tell anyone that you may not be the golden one, but I'm tied together with a smile. And I feel like that kind of defined, that's probably my favorite song that I still listen to when I need like something that resonates with me. Like that fear of not being the golden one, of not being perfect, of not living up to that expectation. So yeah. now moving on into as you're getting older, did you see that kind of play out? Um. Yeah. Uh, So when I was when I was in grade school, there was the gifted and talented program. And I tried so hard to get into that. And it was so heartbreaking to see some of my friends just not even try and be gifted and talented. And so I ended up getting in one year. And I was like, I did it. I'm I'm a gifted kid, you know, blah. But then, you know, there's like this whole I don't, I would want to call it a resurgence, but a surgence, especially on TikTok and Instagram about the gifted burnout kid. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Where it's like, I was gifted. I didn't really try in school. And now where am I? What do I have left? Like, I don't have like awards or grades to tell me how good I am, you know, like, especially with my jobs and my boyfriends. Um, because I always felt like I was not doing enough or I wasn't enough, um, for my job. So I always thought my boss was mad at me (laughs) and I always felt like the jobs that I was in was, were like, not, not to the standard of what was expected of me from my dad, particularly just because he wanted me to be stable, (laughs) So that was really stressful. And then on the boyfriend end, I always felt like I wasn't enough. And I always was very clingy and very like, please don't leave me because I felt so flawed. And so like, if I don't feel like I'm worthy enough to be alive, like how could I feel worthy enough for a, a you know romantic relationship for someone to love me deeply if I don't love myself? So that sort of thing. And I feel like I have to touch on this a little bit, but, um, part, so my big childhood traumas are, um, lots of shame, lots of feeling like I'm not good enough or like worthlessness, but then also abandonment. 
and this was kind of recent, maybe within a year that I figured this out, but uh, I was talking to my therapist and I was like, you know, but my dad didn't leave, you know, I don't have any abandonment. And she said, yes, whenever he married Vicky uh, and she did all of these horrible things to me and he just stood by and, you know, didn't do anything about it. That was a form of abandonment. And so then I was looking to fill that void with men, with other people. And then I would, and that person would be like, fill that void. And I would feel full and together and have hope. But then when they left, it triggered that abandonment trauma. And so that's why all of these breakups were so hard for me. And that's why in my current relationship, I'm still subconsciously very worried that he's going to leave me. And he knows all of this. And he's like, I put a ring on it. Like, I'm not leaving. <laughs> but I'm like, no, it could still happen. But we're having to work through that as a couple of like trusting and just knowing that he's going to be there for me, you know, and like, we're going to work through this together and stuff like that. So um, it definitely was very, um, it's very hard. And I feel like when you're, when you're developing as a child, like these things impact so much that you carry them your whole life. And I'm still carrying my traumas and they, it seems like a lot of my anxiety and my depression is tied to those. I've been doing a lot of meditating recently. Like I'm going on a silent meditation retreat this um, weekend, my very first, I'm very excited. And, um, I'm kind of realizing like, okay, well, why am I anxious about this? Oh, well, it goes back to Brian leaving me, my fiance leaving me or, or um, oh, I don't feel like I'm worthy enough to buy a Brita filter because it's $40 and why do I deserve that? Like, it's just like the weirdest stuff that it comes out in. <sighs> like the other day, um, this is this is a little bit of a lengthy story, but I think it is just so perfectly encompasses <laughs> my mental illness and like how frustrating and dumb it can be sometimes. And I use dumb lovingly, but also in a frustrated <laughs> way. <laughs> um, so it was right after the NAMI conference. So I get back. And so Brian and I do this thing where um, I'll be like, hey, surprise, I put up pictures like in the living room and he's like oh it looks great like and then we get excited um and so he did that for me and he was like hey I put together our bed frame and I was like yeah this is awesome and so we're like looking at the bed and I'm like oh we have so much room we're both really excited about it we're laying down we're like having a good time so like four hours five hours later we go to go to sleep and I look down at the bed and I'm like panic just washed over and I was like I can't sleep here and then immediately I'm like, why can't I sleep here? That's really odd. <laughs> and then I went into the spiral of like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Because at this point, like, I was like, I would rather sleep on the floor in the living room than sleep on this bed, but I couldn't figure out why. And so I was like, Jacqueline, just sleep in the bed too. I can't do it. And so it spiraled and spiraled until I had a panic attack. And then I took panic attack medicine and then I had another panic attack. So I had to take more panic attack medicine. And so uh, finally, Brian and I were like, okay, well, this it's late. Why don't we just take the, the bed frame and put it in the living room and sleep on the floor like we have been because we just moved. So we didn't have a bed frame for like 
a month and a half, two months. So we just put the bed back on the floor. And so then I fell asleep. The next day I was like, hey, that was really weird. Let's talk about it. And he was like, yeah, sure. We talk about it for maybe 45 seconds. Have another panic attack. And I was like, what is this? So luckily I had um, an Angela appointment is what I call it, my therapy appointment. And so we're kind of walking through it. And finally I realized, I was like, is it because we didn't put the bed together together? And she was like, that's it. I was like, that makes no sense. And she was like, actually it does because, excuse me, you're a story person. You want to create memories with your partner. And that's how you kind of like traverse life. But him doing it without you kind of makes you feel like, well, what if he does other stuff without me? Which triggers, drum roll please, my abandonment trauma. <laughs> and so um, it triggered my depression and anxiety so incredibly much that I ended up having panic attacks and all those things, but it all tied back to my childhood trauma. And then whenever I got to the root of that, I was like, okay, I'm good. And so it took us two weeks. We ended up moving the bed on the ground over a couple feet because that's where we wanted the bed to be when it was on the post. And then I slept like that for a couple nights and I was like, I hate this. And then I was like, okay, it's not that bad. And then we put it on the, on the bed frame and then I didn't like it a couple nights, but now I'm fine with it. So it's just like you, as someone who like, you know, has depression and anxiety, it just, it takes a little, it takes some extra steps, you know? <laughs> Being self-aware to figure out what those extra steps are and to recognize the childhood trauma and having that therapist to support you through it is so important because childhood trauma plays out over and over again until we work through it. And it takes so much to work through it. A lot of people have this misconception that you're just going to like recognize what it is and be like, fix it, done. No, like, no, it's going to take a long time and that's okay and it may not present itself in the same way for a while and you might think oh I did move past it and then something happens that triggers it and that's okay too childhood trauma can like really stay with us and a lot of people think that oh I know what it is therefore I can fix it but it just takes so much time to do that <laughs> Yes, so much time. And it's okay if it takes you decades. If it takes, yeah. like, if it's a lifelong thing, if it's something that you do figure out a way to heal and move through earlier on, all of it's okay. Mm -hmm. And everyone's experience is valid through that. We are running out of time. But to wrap up, what is one piece of advice you'd like to share to someone else who's maybe struggling or in the beginning of that recovery journey? No one is going to heal you except you. You have to make the decision to better your life and your mental health because it has to come from within you. So let's say you're going to therapy. You have to do your homework. You have to really understand and listen to what your therapist is telling you. You have to read self-help books and then put those things into practice. You have to be conscious and understanding and patient with yourself, but no one else is going to do that for you. You you have to be the one to you, you're you're in the front, you know? You're the person who has the big sign in the front of a parade, you know? Like 
all of the support, all of the help, you have to seek it out. It doesn't just happen to you. You have to be the one to grab the reins. Thank you so much for listening to Normalize the Conversation. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This podcast is an initiative of inspiring my generation. Focusing on normalizing the conversation, bringing education and awareness to the forefront, and amplifying global voices to spark change and hope. Inspiring My Generation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization on a mission towards suicide prevention through awareness, conversation, education, and support. Connect with us on Instagram at Inspiring My Generation and visit our website, inspiringmygeneration.org, to learn more about our work and how you can make a difference.